All right, the title of my message today is Avoiding Guile, Lying, Part 1. Um, Psalms 32 says, A Psalm of David, Mashal. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. Psalms 119 says, Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord. Put me not to shame. God, we do thank you for this day to be able to hear your word in your house, God. We pray, God, that you would not let this word fall on deaf ears, God, and that it would truly be of you. Protect me from any error, God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to look at lying, how to avoid it, and its consequences. So the general concept of lying in the Bible has many terms. Lying, guile, deceit, dissembling, and leasing, to name a few. Here are a couple definitions to get us started. According to Oxford, guile is insidious cunning, deceit, and treachery. Lies, according to Oxford, a false statement made with intent to deceive. Now, a lie is not just saying something untrue. For example, if someone asked me, you know, if James walked out of here, where's James? And I said, oh, he's in the back room. And he really walked out that back door unbeknownst to me. I would have been wrong, but I wouldn't have been lying. I just was mistaken. So the intent is kind of important when you're lying. There's an intent to deceive. The lack of the intent, or at least negligent, to cause deceit is, in, is illustrated in this passage where the prophet says something that's not technically true, but he's not lying. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to 1 Kings 22, and we're going to start at verse 5. So 1 Kings 22, starting at 5, it says, and Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides, that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good unto me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes, in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chananiah, made him horns of iron, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou hast have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, by like the, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he came to the king, 
And the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead the battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I abjure thee that thou, shalt, that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? So we had two kings here considering going to war. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, was a good king. 400 prophets were gathered together by the bad king of Israel, who was Ahab. They said with one accord, go to war. Jehoshaphat recognized the false prophets for what they were and wanted to hear from a real prophet. So Ahab, king of Israel, hated Micaiah, but he called him anyway. And Micaiah said, go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. This wasn't true, but it was not a lie. It was not a lie because he was not deceiving the king, and the king was not deceived. Notice the king Ahab's response, How many times shall I abjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? Apparently, by the way the prophet spoke, it was evident to the king that he was being sarcastic and just doing as he was commanded or expected to prophesy. Later in the passage, Micaiah goes on to truly prophesy that, no, don't go to battle and it's not going to work and you're only going because um, he put lying, lying spirits were sent in the mouths of those prophets to trick the king into going there so he'd be destroyed. So, um, again, notice that the prophet was not guilty of the sin of lying even though he said words that were false. It is possible to be lying, to not be lying while saying words that are false. This can occur if you are being obviously sarcastic and not intending to or actually deceiving anyone. Conversely, you can literally say technically true words while intending and succeeding to deceive. This is a form of lying also. Let's look at some scripture that will help illustrate how God characterizes all wicked deceit as a form of lying. So if you turn to Leviticus 6, Leviticus 6 is talking about different ways you can steal via fraud and what, is a, what was to be done about it in the theocracy. Theocracy, if you break that word down, theos, it means God, like theology, which is the study of God, and that crossy part of the word, that's the form of government or the form of rule, like a democracy, people rule, so it's demos, people, crossy is rule. So theocracy is just the fancy word meaning that God's ruling. And we call the government in the time of Moses a theocracy as God's presence was known visibly to the people and he appeared personally to Moses. So God was directly ruling in a way that he is not currently doing, either in church or in our civil government. God's not appearing personally to the pastor or personally to the leader of the nation. He's, it's not a theocracy. It will be again mm -hmm when G our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, returns back during the Millennial Kingdom. But back to Leviticus 6. In Leviticus 6, starting at verse 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord, and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or hath found that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely, and any of, in any of all these that a man doeth, sinning therein, then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, 
and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth, in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation, for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. So if you take anything away by fraud, you need to give it back. That's called the principle, and add a fifth part more to it. That is like interest to the person that was defrauded. Then you give an offering to the priest so you can get forgiveness for your trespass. That's how it worked in the, in the theocracy. So one example it gives is lying about that which was given to keep, or in fellowship. Given to keep would refer to something that is held in trust. Fellowship would be what today we refer to as a partnership, where two or more people own something jointly. They're calling it using the word fellowship. We more likely use the word partnership today, but it's referring to the same type of thing, multiple people owning something. Breaking a trust or a partnership by lying. The property either was not his or not entirely his. Then maybe the fraudster sold it and said, you never gave me anything. Or he said, don't you remember? I gave it back. Or you agreed that I could have your half. Or maybe he took property that was supposed to be put in trust and instead just put it in his name and never said anything. Or it could have been something taken by violence, the passage says. A robber hit a man over the head and stole his ring. The robber brought it to the fraudster's store. The robbed man then came to the store and said, A robber stole my ring. Did he come fence this stolen property here? And the fraudster lies and says, No, because it is an expensive ring and he wants to keep it and make a profit. Or the bad man himself covers his face with a mask and stole it by violence. But then when the person came into the shop and said, hey, that looks like my ring, the man lied and said, no, it's not your ring. Or it could have been he found something that was lost but wanted it for himself, so he just didn't say anything. Notice in verse 2 and in verse 3 it mentions lying twice, and it mentions deceiving. But when he lists all those different ways of stealing by fraud in verse 4, notice how he describes each type, type of fraudulent theft. It does not even use the word lying because they were all fraudulent. They all involved lying. Being deceitful was one of the ways listed in which a man could defraud someone. It is a form of lying. It does not necessarily even have to involve false words or any words at all to be deceiving somebody and thus lying. Now notice all these passages where deceit and lying are listed together. You don't have to turn to all these because we're just going to be reading a couple verses from each one, but Psalms 5 says, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I'll come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, for, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Leasing there is just another word for lying. In Psalms 101, it says, um, A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. And then look at verse 7. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked off of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. So again, deceit and lies are there put side by side because they're, they go together. 
In Jeremiah 9, it says, and they will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in, is, is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. Hosea 11, Ephraim compassed me about with lies in the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. Zephaniah 3 says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The passages we just looked at mostly involved deceit that was associated with lying words, but lying is more than words, or it can be. Notice Micaiah 6. It says, Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The weights are deceitful. How? By having weights that are too small that you use when you are selling your product, and different weights to use when buying your product that are heavier. Both look the same. There's no words on them, but they're lying. They're deceit, nevertheless. They do it out of greed and wanting to make profit, and so they just make the weights a little bit off so that over time they're just defrauding their customers. The Lord condemns that in other places in the scripture, but that's the Bible calls it there a, a deceitful weights because it's a form of lying when you do that, even if you're not saying any untruths out of your mouth. You're still deceitful and you're still a liar if you use deceitful weights. In Zechariah 13, it says, and it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy. Then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied, neither shall they, shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. So this was a pretty bad and maybe future time in history, but it's pointing out that there was a rough garment that they were wearing to deceive. The rough garment would have been like sackcloth. And the wearing of the garment was supposed to express humility before God. These prophets were not humble or contrite before God, but put on the garment mm -hmm. to pretend that they were. They wore the garment to deceive. This deception is lying. And when the Bible warns that liars shall not escape or that liars shall miss the kingdom and spend it in hell, they'll not be able to say, but I didn't lie to anyone in my deception. I was just wearing the sackcloth. It's not a lie if they took that to mean I was a humble and a contrite prophet. Those excuses will not work at the judgment seat of Christ, though doubtless some will be giving them. The man who buried his talent tried to explain away his way out of hell, and it didn't work for him either. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it, it says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. These wonders are performed to impersonate God. Anything we say, or in this case do, that is designed to deceive is a form of lying that God will punish. Turn to this passage now, 1 Kings 13. It's an interesting story about a man of God that lied. The younger man of God had just prophesied and then healed the king's hand. So this younger man of God is going to say to the king, or the king's going to say to this younger man of God, Rather, in 1 Kings 13, starting at verse 7, it says, 
And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, Which way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thy house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. So needless to say, in the rest of this story, he does go home with him, and he ends up getting killed by a lion for it. Look at what these commentators said. Jameson Fosses Brown in 1871 says, And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord. This circuitous mode of speaking, instead of simply saying, The Lord spake to me, was adopted to hide an equivocation, to conceal a double meaning, an inferior sense given to the word angel to offer a seemingly superior authority to persuade the prophet, while really the authority was secretly known to the speaker to be inferior. The angel, that is messenger, was his own sons, who were worshippers, perhaps priests, at Bethel. So, before we break down what that just said, as an aside, when preaching, we should use quotes of men sparingly. Paul quoted heathen poets a couple of times, but it was very infrequently. In this case, this commentary made the point very well, though I thought it was worth repeating. But if we spend whole sermons quoting commentaries, scientific studies, dictionary def definitions, and other uninspired writings, our emphasis is in the wrong place. We end up taking away from the Word of God, which should be magnified, not minimized. We need to give the sense, like they did in Nehemiah, but not let any other written sources even have the appearance of having equal weight to our scriptures. And we do this to our shame when we spend more time quoting from them than we do our Holy Bible. But in any case, let's try to understand what that commentary said. First, let's define this word that he used, equivocation. Oxford says, to use a word in more than one application or sense, to use words of double meaning, to deal in ambiguities, to misapprehend through ambiguity of language in a bad sense, to mean one thing and express another, to prevaricate. The witness shuffled, equivocated, pretended to, be mis pretended to misunderstand the questions. Another example is, though you will not swear, perhaps, God knows whether you will not equivocate a lie in your trading. And another example sentence says, he equivocated his vow by a mental reservation. So that means he was thinking something in his head 
to say, okay, this is what I really mean when he was saying something. So equivocation in this sense would be like, again, when that lying prophet said an angel spake to me, his sons being technically messengers, like an evangelist that has that angel in the middle of it, that word, or like the angel of the church, which is the pastor, you know, not some heavenly being, he is saying the older, this commentator was saying, the older lying prophet's son could really be said to be angels. But when he said it to the younger prophet, the prophet is likely going to assume from the context that this is a heavenly angelic being. He likely believed this because it caused him to disregard what the Lord told him, presumably because the Lord told him some other way than by the direct revelation of a heavenly messenger. See how the old prophet deceived the younger prophet, that he was told by an angel, that is, a heavenly angel, when perhaps he really meant an earthly angel, one of his sons. If he told the younger prophet, my sons came and told me by the word of the Lord to bring you back unto mine house, it probably wouldn't have convinced him, and he would have kept going and not got eaten by the lion. We can't be sure that this is what happened in this case. The story doesn't tell us this explicitly, but this kind of deceiving by using ambiguous wording to get someone to believe one thing based on one definition of a word when you really didn't mean that definition of the word, but instead something else is called equivocation. It is a form of deceit. And as we've seen in the Bible, these form of deceit are still lies. God is not deceived by these word games and neither should we be deceived. Another form of lying that was mentioned there is prevarication. Here's what prevarication means according to Oxford. Avoidance of plain dealing or straightforward statement of the truth, evasion, quibbling, shuffling, equivocation, double dealing, or deception. People practice these forms of lying all the time. People with quick wits, large vocabularies, and people who speak for a living are often good at this. Lawyers, actors, and preachers are all professions where you should especially be on the lookout for this sort of lie. For example, perhaps a preacher was divorced. There was a man who heard the preaching online and was thinking of moving to attend the like-minded church. But he wouldn't come if he knew the preacher was divorced. The preacher, perhaps aware of this, nevertheless wanted the man to move here. He figured he just needed to give the man the vision from the scriptures in person. That vision being that his divorce was justified biblically and he was still qualified to preach. Surely, since he believed he was the pastor of a good church, and since his doctrine was right, and since he thought the man was a good man with a good family, that it would be good to get him into his church and explain to him the truth of the scriptures later. Ah, but the man asked him why his wife wasn't around. The pastor didn't want to say he was divorced and risk spoiling the chance at a new member. So perhaps he said something like, she is in Texas because she had mercury poisoning from fillings and was trying to treat the poisoning. Now, if the pastor believed that the reason or a reason the divorce happened was due to mental or emotional issues from mercury poisoning that led to sin worthy of a divorce, he can rationalize in his mind that what he said was true. It wasn't a lie because he believed his statement as he worded it. But if he deceived the man with his words into assuming that he still had a wife, albeit a sick one, he is a deceiver and a liar. The man would then relocate here under false pretenses. Again, God will not be mocked by word games, and he won't be sympathetic to the reasoning that the pastor needed to give the man his vision in person. And the exact details of the above story don't really matter. 
The bottom line is if the preacher gave the man the idea that he was not divorced, the preacher was lying and is a liar that needs to repent or he is in danger of hellfire. Why do some preachers, even seemingly conscientious ones that care about the truth, seem to so easily fall into these types of lies? Lord willing, in a part two of this sermon on lying, we will answer that question. But for now, the Bible does say this. Jeremiah 48.10 said, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. We cannot be equivocating, prevaricating, or in any way be deceitful. We need to be straightforward and honest with people. If our doctrines are true, the Lord will bless our work. But if we hide our truth for gain of another member, it will lead to curses. The curse might even be that we're stuck believing a false doctrine or error that might have been made manifest sooner if we didn't hide it in a cowardly and deceitful fashion. Equivocation and prevarication are good words that describe specific forms of lying. But in the Bible, in addition to the more generic lying and deceit and guile, God uses the words dissembling and dissimulation. Again, according to Oxford, dissimulation is the action of dissimulating or dissembling, concealment of what really is, under a feigned semblance of something different, feigning, hypocrisy. So turn to Proverbs 26, starting at verse 24. This definition here fits really well with the scriptures, or I should say the scriptures confirm that this is a good definition of dissimulation. So in Proverbs 26, starting at verse 24, it says, He that hateth dissembleth with his lips, and layeth up deceit within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart, whose hatred is covered by deceit. His wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. So stopping there for a second, the, the dissembler is pretending to be something that he's not. He's speaking fair. It doesn't matter if the words he speaks are technically not false. And as verse 28 shows, he still falls under the category of a deceiver, a liar. In verse 28, it says, A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Notice how verse 28, the liar, closely parallels verse 24, the dissembler. Peter was even guilty of this after the Lord returned to heaven. He gave off that he was something that he was not. In Galatians 2, in verse 11, it says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter had no problem eating with the Gentiles, but then some brothers came from James's church. Um, you ever notice, just as an aside, how no one bothers calling anyone by titles like pastor in the Bible, and no one gets offended by it? I just wonder why sometimes, but... And Peter suddenly separated himself and tried to make the Gentiles follow Jewish customs, even though he was no longer doing this himself. Peter and Barnabas were guilty of dissimulation, concealment of what really is, under a feigned semblance of something different, 
feigning hypocrisy, like the description said. So now let's see some things that happen as a result of lies and that happen to liars. In Proverbs 14, it says, a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. So if we lie, we're being what? Faithless. Proverbs 14.25 also says, A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. The liar does not deliver souls. He scatters them like the wicked pastors of Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 verse 1 says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whether I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord." These pastors were also liars. It said in verse 26 of that same chapter, How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And notice again, the lies are associated with deceit. So many times in the scriptures, those words appear in close proximity to each other. God hates lying. And according to the Bible, the liar will get his just reward. Proverbs 6 says, a naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart, he deviseth mischief continually, he soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running the mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. He even mentions lying twice in that list. God hates the false witness that speaketh lies, and he hates his lying tongue also. It's so important that he gives those each their own place in the list. And look what's in that list too, hands that shed innocent blood, it's a, it's a very serious thing to have a lying tongue. Proverbs 19 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Isaiah 28 says, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. Hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies. That sounds pretty scary. So let's turn to one more passage in Acts chapter 5. The beginning of Acts chapter 5, it's a pretty familiar passage, Ananias and Sapphira. So we'll read Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. 
And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Ananias was struck dead for lying. If you notice, it doesn't even say if he specifically said he sold the land for such and such, but really lied and kept part of it back. He might have just told them that he sold it for such and such and allowed or guided everyone to think that it was the entire piece of land represented by the value he gave. It doesn't tell us specifically because it doesn't matter. The lie is in the deceit, not whether what he said in some kind of word game was technically not false. Ananias and his wife Sapphira both got struck dead for lying. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 8.11, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. There are times we have lied and God has not struck us dead. This was probably not the first time Ananias and Sapphira lied either. But we must not trod underfoot the blood of the Son of God. He died for the sin of lying. He died for our sins of lying. If we lie, we risk dying. And the death did not stop at this life. Ananias and Sapphira will miss the thousand-year kingdom also. This could be us. Remember, we can't pretend we aren't lying by playing lawyerly word games. God is not mocked. If we deceive and practice guile, we will miss the kingdom. Let us be like Nathaniel. What a wonderful thing for the Lord to say to a man. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. That's what Jesus said to Nathanael in John chapter 1. Behold an, Israel, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Lord God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for giving us your holy word, God. We thank you that we have it here in one book. We thank you that Nobody's kicking in this door and taking it away from us, God. We thank you that we don't have to go to great trouble or expense to procure a copy of your word, God. You're so merciful for giving it to us. Help us to take heed to it. Help us to not despise it. Help us to read it every day and to seek your face every day that we're alive. Please bless us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.